Well, thank you for the warm welcome. It's good to be back with you again. Uh, I've been a couple of times recently, but it's lovely to see familiar faces and hopefully to feel welcome and uh, things like that. So it's great to be here. And uh, I bring greetings from TCM, of course. We are joining with you and uh, supporting you very much in prayer as you go through this time of interregnum. You will know that we've been through a couple of these recently, uh, and so we know the pressures that there are there for you. So be aware, be assured that we are very much in prayer for you. Um, it's a, a privilege to share together in worship with brothers and sisters, no matter where we are around the world. We can always go to different places all over this world and know that there are God's people there. And it's lovely to share in worship and in fellowship with you. It's also a privilege to bring God's word to you this morning. And uh, when I saw Genesis 14 up on the slide earlier, I thought I'd arrived a week late, um, <laughs> which isn't anything new, story of my life. But um, it's good to know that there it says Genesis 13. So we're accompanying Abram on the journey, the long journey he's embarked upon in obedience to God's call. And Moses introduces him at the end of Genesis 11. He travels with his father and his nephew Lot from Ur in present-day Iraq, through present-day Syria, and to the land God called them to, the land of Canaan, and that's in chapter 12. But when there's a famine in the land, um, Abram decides to take matters into his own hands and go to Egypt. First century uh, historian Josephus tells us Abram had discovered the Egyptian Egyptians were in a flourishing condition and he was disposed to partake of the plenty they enjoyed. He didn't trust God, but was attracted by what appeared to be a life of plenty in Egypt. You remember he was caught out by Pharaoh when uh, he tried to deceive him by saying his wife Sarai was his sister. Abram got it wrong and Pharaoh wasn't best pleased. And this is where you were last week. Uh, in the sermon last week. So in today's passage at the beginning of chapter 13, we find him coming back from Egypt to the hill country of Canaan between Bethel and Ai, north of Jerusalem and west of the river Jordan. Abram and Sarai in chapter 13 and verse 2 uh, arrive back where they were in chapter 12 and verse 8, where we read, there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And this is repeated in chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. He journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. Abram's back where he was. Despite his failure to trust God in chapter 12, the Lord doesn't give up on him and choose someone else to be the father of the nation. Oh, that Abraham is done bad, can't use him. No. God brings him on this journey in verses 1 to 4 back to Bethel, back to the altar, back to God. And the journey is significant <clears throat> and it should encourage all of us because all of us fail him sometimes, don't we? We all fail God at times. Thank God he doesn't just reject us and put on the pile of rejects when we fail him. 
He doesn't do that. Abram's going back to start again. His return expresses his repentance, turning back to God's way. And coming back to the altars, symbolic, is the place where atonement's made, where forgiveness is found by the sacrifice of a substitute. He's coming back. He's starting again with God. Do you remember the first time God spoke to you? I became a Christian in a small village in God's own country in the Yorkshire Dales. I remember it well. It was Easter Sunday and I met Jesus at the cross. He spoke to me at the cross where he was sacrificed in my place. But I know I need to keep returning to the cross, to keep coming back to the cross often. So when you've let our Saviour down, when you failed him again, and you're tempted to think, surely Jesus can't and doesn't want to use people like me who lets him down. Go back to the cross. Realise afresh that he, Jesus, died for you. A sinner, a rebel, an enemy, Romans 5 tells us. He loved you and gave his life for you. Go back to the cross often and be reminded of the amazing grace of God. Abram goes back. He's on a journey. He's a traveller, a stranger in the land. Have you ever been to a, a different town or a country and felt you didn't belong? People are quick to let you know, aren't they? You talk differently. You look funny. Things like that. When I moved from Yorkshire to uh, university in Liverpool, I was a white rose man, not a red rose man. When I spent two years in Germany, I was der Engländer, which means the English person. Um, but by the end of my time there, that had changed to unser Engländer, which means our English person. <clears throat> so it mellowed a little bit. Um, and then when I moved to Brighton to work, I was a northerner. Where do we belong? We just want to be long somewhere, don't we? We want to feel that we belong somewhere. But the Bible makes it clear that Christians don't belong here. We mustn't get settled. We read of Abraham and other Old Testament people of faith in Hebrews 11:13, where it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. They were strangers and exiles on earth. And Peter writes in his first letter to God's people scattered all over the world as sojourners and exiles. Sojourners, people passing through, temporary residents and exiles, foreigners in a land not their own. In the King James Version, the word pilgrim is used. Pilgrim, defined as someone who journeys a long distance to some sacred place. Interestingly, interestingly coming from the Latin word peregrinus, a first century Roman word for someone who lived in Rome but wasn't a Roman. In other words, a foreigner. A peregrine falcon, just another bit of interest, a peregrine falcon is a falcon, a, is a bird, one, coming from a foreign country. That's where it gets its word peregrine from. Christians, we must be pilgrims. 
We live as strangers in a foreign land, and it's important for Christians to remain strangers on earth, just passing through until we reach our true home in heaven. Verses 5 to 9 tell us of the problem that Abram has. Both he and his nephew Lot are now well off, so much so that the, la the land they were on couldn't support them, couldn't support the livestock that they got from Pharaoh. There just wasn't enough grazing land for them, uh, or wells for water. So strife, disputes break out between the two sets of workers, workers in verse 7. Um, it only takes two to have a quarrel, doesn't it? Um, some people argue with themselves. But Abram wants the family to maintain a unified front, a united front, before the Canaanites and the Perizzites, who were the peoples living in that land at that time. So he generously and graciously suggests that they go separate ways, one to the left, left, one to the right. Problem solved. So, where is the evidence of the stranger referred to in Hebrews 11 verse 13? What does he look like? What makes him different? Is it the way he talks? Is it the way he walks? Does he wear special sandals? Does he carry a big book of scripture? What shows us the stranger on earth in these verses? Let's look firstly at Lot in verses 10 to 13 and see what it doesn't mean to be a stranger on earth. What it doesn't mean. What must a stranger on earth not do? Lot isn't a stranger on earth. He goes on appearances. Lot, we're told, went with Abram. God gave Abram a promise and told him to move to Canaan. And Lot went with him, chapter 12, verse 4. After Abram had learned his lesson in Egypt about trusting God, he returned to Canaan and Lot with him, chapter 13, verse 1. Abram was on a journey of faith and Lot went with him. Lot's motivation here was different to Abram's. And we see this when Abram lets Lot choose where to settle. He goes on appearances. When Lot looked up, in verse 10, he saw land that would make him prosperous, providing all he and his family could possibly need. No question which way he'd go. Contrasted with the barren hill country, the land by the river Jordan was fertile. And he had visions of living in luxury and leisure and pleasure. He must have thought all his birthdays and Christmases had come at once, except Christmas hadn't been invented yet. He looked up and saw only good prospects and security, happy days. But he only saw what he wanted to see. He didn't see the dangers that are hinted at here. Look at verse 10. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now we readers cringe, don't we? Because we know what's coming in chapter 19. But don't worry, I'm not going to spoil it for you for the sermon that's coming in May. So I'm not going to talk about that. Um, Lot makes his choice and pitches his tents near the high life city of Sodom. He doesn't see the immorality or reckon with the downward pull of prosperity and evil. And by chapter 14, verse 12, he's living in the city. 
we have to be aware, we have to see the danger. We often only see what we want to see. We close our eyes to the dangers. You see, we can't trust our own wisdom. Proverbs 3 in verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Lot leans fully on his own understanding and pays no attention to God. We're to use our understanding, but not to lean on it. We need to ask God's help to see whatever situa situation we're in for, the really, for, excuse me, for what it really is. We can't assume we've got everything sussed, that we've assessed the situation correctly, that we're in control and can handle it. Do not lean on your own understanding. Lot thought he understood the situation, but all he could see was how he could be prosperous in the land that lay before him. Don't just go on appearances. When we lift our eyes, we must learn to ask for God's help to see the reality of every situation. For example, will taking that promotion, will choosing to move, will deciding who to marry affect me and those around me in a positive way? Will it bring glory to God? Will it strengthen my witness to those around me? Will it show my priorities lie in a world that I'm traveling to or the world that I'm in? Will I be like Lot on a downward spiral to entering fully into the world I should be just passing through? If we, do, we like to conform and feel we fit in where we are, don't we? But if we do, we're not strangers on earth that God calls us as Christians to be. This world is not our home. Christians must be people who hear God's voice saying, this is the way, walk in it. Lot shows us how not to be a stranger on earth. He places all his trust in what he sees before him right now. Hebrews 11 verse one says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Our hope in Jesus is certain, a hope of salvation and eternal life on a new earth, a place we're traveling to. So let's turn now to Abram and see what that looks like, the life of faith the life of a stranger on earth. Firstly, we see in verses eight and nine that he has a certain freedom because he trusts in the providence of God. Abram's got every right as head of the family to tell his nephew Lot where to settle, but he doesn't. Abram's selfless. He must know Lot will choose the most fertile land he must know Lot will choose self-advancement, but he still gives Lot, his nephew, the choice. How can he afford to do that, knowing that he's already failed God in Egypt? Well, letting Lot choose shows Abram's now trusting God. 
Abram can do this now because he has faith in the promise God made him in chapter 12, verse 7. To your offspring I will give this land. He rests on God's promise. Unlike when he went down to Egypt, he's now trusting God's promises to make him into a great nation and give his descendants the land he's walking on. God's promised these things to him. And he reckons that whatever decision Lot makes about where to live, no matter where Abram goes, God will fulfill his promises. He places himself under the care and provision of God. God's surely going to make him the father of a great nation. He doesn't know how, but surely God will make sure that it does happen because he's promised. Abram doesn't have to manipulate, manipulate God or make the decisions for God. He doesn't say, well, God's promised me land, therefore I need to take the best land. No, God will take care of his promise. We have to believe, like King David, when he says in, in Psalm 31, verse 15, my times are in your hand. Everything that concerns us is in the hands of Almighty God. <clears throat> we must, um, sorry, do we really believe that our times are in his hands? God will take care of his promises. Read through the Bible. Make sure you know the promises of God to you as a believer, as a Christian. Do we really take them from his hand? <clears throat> um, and if we believe that, doesn't it give us a sense of freedom? We're in God's gracious care. How reassuring, how liberating. Of course, this mustn't mean that we become complacent or laid back or lazy. We must actively seek God and his kingdom and his will to be done in our lives. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, and all these things will be added to you. God's in sovereign control and we travel with him to what he's promised. Secondly, we see that Abram receives God's promise and it's personal. Abram receives God's promise and it's personal. Did you notice in 15 and verse 16, he receives an expansion of the promise God made to him in chapter 12. In chapter 12 and verse 7, God promised the land to Abram's offspring. Here in chapter 13, verse 15, he says, all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Chapter 12 and verse 2 says, God will make Abram into a great nation. Here in verse 16, God says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. In other words, so many they can't be counted. Abram has the word of God's promise. God gives the promise to him. It's personal. Abram held on to the promises God gave him. Although remember, verse 11, uh, sorry, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13 that I read earlier says, he died not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. He didn't see the fulfillment, but he knew where he was headed. He knew he was a stranger on earth. 
If God gives you a promise, you've got to trust him, haven't you? We've got to trust the promises that God gives to us. Surely we can trust the God who made us and all that we see, can't we? Hold on to his promises. But of course, God doesn't give us the promise of a place called home forever, does he? Doesn't he? He certainly does. Listen to John 14 and verses 1 to 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to be to, be, to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus himself has promised as a place with him. If we're Christians, if we've repented of our sins and know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, he's promised us a place where he is. And we can take this promise seriously because as the, this is the almighty son of God, Jesus, giving us this promise. If it was made by politicians, we know it probably wouldn't happen. But Jesus himself makes this promise to you. And he means it. He says if it were not so, he wouldn't have said it. And, if it, and it's for each one of us to hold on to. We can live as strangers on earth. Because Jesus has promised us a place where he is, in heaven, forever. This is personal. Hold on to God's promise. Have faith in the one who promises. Are you trusting God like Abram did? Or are you on another path, making your own way, like Abram in chapter 12? Like Lot here in chapter 13, unaware of the danger you're in? Make no mistake, the Bible is very clear. That way will not lead to heaven. Don't risk eternity for the sake of short-term pleasures. That's a no-brainer, isn't it? Trust God's promises. We see thirdly that Abram enjoys a foretaste of God's goodness. Abram enjoys a foretaste of God's goodness. Have you ever gone into the kitchen when someone's cooking tea or baking and they've let you have a quick taste of what they're making just to whet your appetite? It gives you a foretaste of what's to come later on when you enjoy the finished product, hopefully. The stranger on earth enjoys a foretaste of the goodness of God. God says, have a look, taste and see that the Lord is good. God tells Abram in verses 14 and 17 to look and see. Lift up his eyes in every direction. He says, arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, he says, for I will give it to you. Have a look, have a foretaste of my goodness to you. I'm giving all this land to you and your offspring. This is my promise. Go and see. Go and get a feel for what it'll be like. This is my gift to you. God lets Abram walk around and around the land that will belong to his people one day. He can see it now and live in it, in the light of it, until the promise is fulfilled. He gets a foretaste now. We read in Ephesians 1 and verse 3, God has blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And this is what God's promised to everyone who believes and trusts in Jesus as Saviour and Lord. Every spiritual blessing. That's his gift to all who will believe. And he's saying to us, walk in my ways. See what life in my kingdom's like. See my goodness to you now as you live for me. Taste the blessings that are yours now. Enjoy my gift to you. You may have seen that programme, Escape to the Country. It's on in the afternoon, so workers may not have seen it. But in that, uh, that programme, people are shown possible houses of their dreams. And when they've been told the price, they're told to go and have a good look around and see what could be theirs if they're willing to pay the price. God invites us to look around. And the great news is he's already paid the price. Jesus paid the price on the cross. Look at what's already ours. God tells Abram and us to lift up our eyes. See this truth. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Apply it to your life. Learn to appreciate all that it means to you. How do we do this? By taking every opportunity to read his word, to spend time with him in prayer, to share in fellowship with others who are also learning to appreciate what it means. Every opportunity, not just on a Sunday morning. Take every opportunity to get to know what the Lord has given to us in Christ. We're getting a foretaste of God's goodness, his grace, and what it will mean to be in the land he's promised to us. One day, we will see the fullness of what it means to live in the kingdom of God, to live on God's new earth. At the moment, we're strangers on earth, enjoying a God-given foretaste of what it's going to be like. And that's what it's like as we come together to worship on a Sunday morning, isn't it? It should be a small foretaste of what we're going to enjoy in God's kingdom forever. Of course, this foretaste isn't available unless you're a Christian, but the offer's there. Come, taste, see, enjoy. This is what can be yours. Jesus has paid the price. And finally, the final few words in verse 18 say, he built an altar to the Lord. He built an altar to the Lord. Abram, the stranger on earth, worships God. He worships God. This follows on naturally from what's gone on before. He's safe under God's care and providence. He trusts in the promises of the perfect and almighty God and he enjoys a foretaste of his goodness, so he praises and worships God. When Abram arrived in Canaan in chapter 12 and verse 7, you'll remember, he built an altar to the Lord. And when he arrived at Bethel the first time in 12 and verse 8, he built an altar. Now he's back, and he builds another altar to God. This is a consistent sign of Abram's continuing worship in recognition that God's in control of his life. Worship's a vital part of his life. And likewise, we should recognise the privilege of being in God's family and the privilege of having opportunities to express our thanks and praise to him. This isn't possible publicly in some parts of the world. And we've had a taste of it, haven't we, over these past two years when meeting together to worship together and fellowship together has been restricted. Did you miss it? 
I guess you did. There's some nods. It's a privilege we enjoy. This altar, the altar, speaks of sacrifice and being brought back to God. And we declare as we worship him that Jesus died. He was buried. He ascended into heaven and is now reigning. And one day, every knee will bow before him, King of Kings. We worship God and proclaim Jesus Lord and Saviour because of what he's done and what he is doing in our lives. But also sometimes despite what's happening in our lives. We don't see the big picture. But we worship him because we know his promises. We know the good promiser. And we know we're travellers passing through this world, lifting our eyes, fully focused on God's heavenly kingdom. Friends, can we fail to worship him? Can we get up in the morning or go to bed in the evening without worshipping him? So in closing, I'd just like to ask you, where are your eyes focused? On the prosperous lifestyle and pleasures you're enjoying now, in this world, or on God? And what lies in store for you in the world he's promised to every believer? What are you looking forward to this morning, tomorrow, in the summer, next year? Where are your eyes focused? What are you trusting in? The promise of this world's temporary comfort and luxury or the promise of life for eternity in heaven, living with God in a land filled with his glory and holiness. Paul writes in Philippians 3 and verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is eternity a reality for you because eternity might stay, start today Jesus will come like a thief in the night nobody knows when are you waiting for Jesus to come are you expecting Jesus to come where are your eyes focused J.B. Phillips paraphrases Hebrews chapter 11, verses 14 to 16, talking about people of faith. He writes, Their eyes are fixed upon their true homeland. They longed for a better country altogether, nothing less than a heavenly one. And because of this faith of theirs, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city in heaven. I pray and trust that you are counted among those people. Let's pray God will keep our eyes fixed firmly on the heavenly country he's promised to us. In the words of that old song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Our Father, would you keep us doing this? Would you help us to keep our eyes fixed firmly on you? Although there are so many distractions around us in this world, so many possibilities, so many opportunities to enjoy the life here. Father, help us to have right priorities. Help us to remember this is not our home. Our home is in eternity, kept safe for us in heaven by our God and our Lord, 
and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Help us to keep looking to you as we go through our life. Help us to encourage each other to look to you. Help us to spur each other on to good works and to follow you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.